Right, good afternoon everybody and welcome to our teleconference uh, today, teleconference number 01. Um, Title Essential Elements of the Relationship Between the Franchisee and the Franchisor. The intention is to discuss some of the responsibilities and obligations which involve you as the franchisor and the franchisee and collectively your franchisees. Now some of the points that come up quite early in people's exploration into franchising but there are some absolutely key elements here and often they can't be finalised or defined until you've more or less finished completing the, um, the, the development of your system because a lot of these questions may, may or the answers to them may change as you design the process and get to understand more the relationship. But we're very fortunate today to have, um, have a guest with us. Um, we have Ivan Paul, lawyer, who's joined us to be able to give us some of his expert um, overview of the process and what I'd like to do is a couple of things. Number one, um, all attendees apart from Ivan, I'd like you just to um, just to hit star six so that we don't get any background noise or feedback. Um, also avoid the problem of any mobile phones ringing in the background. Um, and then we'll have some questions at the end if you have any. What I thought I'd do, would I'll run through uh, with Ivan and ask him some questions and we'll have a bit of a chat about a number of items as they pop up. And to, you, to do that, I'm basically referring to what's typically referred to as the schedule in a franchise agreement where essentially the variables that you find from franchise system to franchise system are defined. So these are things such as the franchise fees and the advertising fees and so on. So the first um, point I'll raise, and I'm not in an order that necessarily would be one you'd seek answers to, but in the order they appear in the schedule, is with regards to intellectual property. It's, uh, I think probably, Ivan, it's fair to say it's a bit of a bit of a quicksand area, intellectual property. It's very broad, isn't it? Yes, it is, uh, Brian, and thank you for inviting me to take part today. Um, intellectual property is really what the franchisor has, which uh, he or they or it, we'll call it it today, make available to the franchisee. In other words, it's what I call, in colloquial terms, the 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> it's the, um, the, the how you do it, the uh, ability to do it, the, the trademarks, the systems and those sorts of things. And yes, intellectual property is, uh, is a very important, and as with brands, over the past probably one or two decades, people are realising that these things have commercial value on the bottom line of both the franchisor and the, and the franchisee's balance sheet. So it's important for the franchisor to have it, to protect it, to, to um, uh, encourage growth of it, uh, to grow it itself and so on. And that's really what a franchisor does. It says, look, I know how to do this. I'm going to show you. And what's more, I'm going to hold your hand through the franchise term and the renewal terms and we're going to go forward together and both prosper. I mean, that's the ideal arrangement. Franchisor makes money, franchisee makes money, and vice versa, and everybody's happy. Right. Now, it's interesting. Well, I signed my first franchise agreement as a franchisee in 1982. It was a document of about 15 pages, mm. <laughs> um, which makes me laugh. And um, but the intellectual property uh, it referred to was basically the Operations and Procedures Manual. Yeah. And it was really, all it was really was a brand name um, of, a, of, a, of a business, um, Bedshed in this instance, so it was just a retail bedding store, and there was a paragraph. Um, these days, of course, it covers a much broader spectrum, doesn't it, because there's so much um, information and data and, 
and uh, material items which are considered intellectual property. Yes, exactly. So just to summarise, in the schedule I sent you, which is just typical of any of the franchisors we act for, and as you know there's quite a few, uh, sort of a number in the tens, um, we just uh, we put in everything we can to protect the franchisor, but by the same token the franchisee can see what the franchisor has, and so you'll have things like customer leads, call centre details, those sorts of things which are perhaps a bit more particular, but it's to make sure bluntly that the franchisee doesn't say, well, I've only got the name to use, I know everything else I'm going to take off. It's also, as I said, to protect both sides so that they know that this, the franchisor is saying we have this intellectual property, we'll develop that sometimes together, and it forms part of what, as I said, the basis for the business. Mm. And it's interesting, it goes just well beyond just sort of what might one might consider the documented sort of uh, design and, um, uh, and instructions and manuals, because... Uh, um, it in includes indeed things like customer lists, um, supplier information, even customer leads and referral processes. So yes. it actually covers a fairly wide area in order to basically, I suppose, avoid anyone leaving the system and being able to exploit any of the knowledge or, or indeed copy any of the material yeah. they've, they've seen. Well, that is true. It's also, um, of course, for um, other competitors of the franchise system, both of the franchisee, principally, but also of the franchisor, um, in saying, well, uh, you know, I'm going to copy this, and the franchisor can say, well, it's ours, and this is how we have it, this is how we prove it in a timeline. We can show we've got this copyright material formed on a certain date, etc., etc., recorded here in our franchise agreements, and so on and so on. So from a franchisor point of view, yes, it's important to have it recorded as much as you can. You'll see that in common with a lot of the phraseology in that schedule, we wind up with what I call my generic sentence, which says, and any other or further intellectual property, which may at any time become the property or, or for the use of the, of the franchisor. So in other words, during the term, uh, term here being the period of five or ten years, whatever it may be in the franchise, the franchisor decides to or does develop some new franchise sorry, some new intellectual property, or uh, enhances or, or um, does something similar to existing uh, its intellectual property, that's automatically collected without having to change your documents all the time. Oh, I see. So, so as the system improves or something new is incorporated, it's automatically covered under that? Yes, um, it's the same with equipment, goods, plants, those sorts of things. We always add those types of generic sentences at the end, so you don't have to rush back to your franchise agreement and say, we're now putting a lathe in our equipment list where we didn't have one before, we had drills and grinders, but now we're putting a lathe or something. I'm just being a bit ridiculous with my examples. But, yeah, no. <laughs> uh, that means that then the, you don't have to change your agreements. It's simply sent out in the manual uh, or you know, online in the manual or whatever the manual store that this is now an equipment is an XYZ lathe or something, and that automatically is included in the franchise agreement by its inclusion in the manual or in the list. Right, okay. Now, something that um, people are often a little confused by is, is the law of copyright. Mm. And they're developing new material, whether it's their manuals and so forth yeah. and different items. What actually is required in order that they qualify for cop uh, protection under copyright law? Yeah, well, thanks for that question. It's one that you could talk about for, for hours. We, I know we only have two or three minutes, but... Uh, don't believe all the old wives' tales of saying that I'll rush off to my solicitor and I'll show them my sparkling new book or poetry that's going to revolutionise the world and make me wealthy and he'll sign off that it's mine and charge me $500 and I'll be happy. That means nothing. I'll, or, and then he says, I'll bury it in the backyard with the local paper of the day and someone digs it up and says it must have been there all that time because <coughs> the box is sealed. 
All of that is nonsense. There's no uh, registrable procedure anywhere in the world for copyright, and um, uh, and copyright exists in the in the property of the person who creates it. So as I'm now looking over this beautiful Gold Coast broadwater and out at the ocean, and if I say that the blue sky makes my heart feel happy, <laughs> um, and I publish that and it's on the news tonight, and someone picks it up tomorrow and says, you know, Woolworths, where your heart is happy or something, I'm just being a bit ridiculous, mm, yeah, yeah. I can say that's mine because I invented that yesterday. It's a novel thought, and therefore I claim copyright in that for 50 years, and 50 years is the longest you can claim copyright. Oh, okay. Hence you'll see... Beatles songs and so on and those sorts of things they'll say in the paper now and again that they're coming out of copyright, that means that they're then available for sort of general usage and distribution without quite so many, um, so, so much protection. Oh. So it, it's, we, when we do documents, for example, every document that it comes from this office, and I've been doing this for more than 40 years, as you know, here in Indonesia, we put a copyright warning on it um, and we put copyright reserved in a code at the bottom of each page so that then we can, and when people are doing, say, if you're the Frenchers or, or you're doing some, some, some um, work that's capable of copyright, like computer software or something, we tell you, you know, to put a code on that and the date that it's created, etc., and keep your source code so that you can always go back and say, well, here's the date it was created and here's the material showing where it came from. Okay. It's a long answer to say that there's no registration procedure as, of course, opposed to designs, patents and trademarks. Um, it's just simply created when... Um, I mean, it is created, and, the, and the, the best example of all of that is to just take any novel, for example, um, and just open the, if it's a book, it's a hard copy, open it up, and you'll see a copyright warning in there saying that this is protected under the provisions of the Copyright Act and in whatever country it might have been created, and goes on and on about uh, unauthorised usage. It's the same when you when you dial up your DVD and or, or, or Blu-ray, whatever it might be, it has the same sort of copyright warning. Oh, I'm with you. Now, um, you mentioned something there which is of interest to a lot of people and um, something that can be um, an expensive exercise, and that's the registration of trademarks and patents. Yes. Um, what's your suggestion to particularly smaller business people just, um, just setting out on a franchise that perhaps haven't registered a trademark and yet have a, a design or a logo or something of that nature? Yeah, well, um, thank you, Bill. Well, there's four types of intellectual property worldwide. Uh, one is copyright. We've dealt with that. Uh, one is patents, one is designs, and one is trademarks. And trademarks over the last decade and a half have sort of uh, uh, extended to sights, smells, sounds, plant breeders' rights, and those sorts of things. So it's not just a, something you draw or you look at and say that's the BP sign or that's the Woolworths Freshers Best, for example, as trademark, obviously those sorts of things. Um, excuse me, most franchisors probably, uh, probably only one in every hundred, although I've happened to be with one from offshore today that I'm involved with is here for the day. Um, and he, in fact, has a patent on a couple of, uh, of a couple of products. But most franchisors don't have patents on their products. Mm. Patents is an area I can't comment on too much because it's like being a medical specialist. You have to be a, a patent attorney. But basically, patenting is easier than it was. It's still quite expensive and quite difficult. And it, would, it only really applies to a, not so much a process because that's recorded by copyright, like a recipe, for example, or a manual mm -hmm. that's capable of copyright. But um, the thing I was talking about, for example, was a, a skip bag, which is made out of, uh, sort of polypropylene stuff, whatever it is, and then lined with other materials. And because of its structure and the way it's supported, it stands up by itself. It's a product called Aussie Skip Bag. So that's under a couple of patents. Designs are very similar. Very, very, very seldom would you see a franchise uh, product or a franchise service, or certainly not a service, but a product that's designed. Designs can apply to anything from a a tractor or a, 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 a 
drag line and mining right down to a safety pin. So they can, but it's usually a product. So what we're basically left with is trademarks, mm. and copyright and trademarks are the two principal types of intellectual property you find in most businesses as well as franchising, of course. Um, the trademark procedure is really quite simple. We do a lot of it here, um, always have. Um, uh, in fact, up to about 10 years ago, I used to do barter cards trademarks all around the world, but the, um, now they've got in-house people, but the, um, we do a lot of Australia and New Zealand particularly, probably two or three a week we lodge. Trademarks are in 45 classes, and without getting too um, off the point, mostly you only have to, to register in one or two classes. Uh, there are 10 classes of services, for example, you know, real estate, medical, so on. Um, and there's a business one, which is very wide, which is 35. And if you're, for example, selling um, clothing, it would be 25, so it's clothing, hats, footwear, headwear, etc. So if you're a clothing, uh, just as an example, if you're a clothing franchisor, you would probably only have to have a couple of classes. Now, that's in Australia only, and all going well, I won't prolong uh, this too much, but all going well, um, you can lodge in, in a class, let's say two classes, but you can lodge in a couple of classes and get your trademark registered, uh, and with legal fees and the application fees to the government for 10 years, it costs around two and a half to 3000 for two classes. So it's not a huge amount. In fact, it's minimal for the value that you get because you then have that for 10 years, that trademark, and automatically, without going back to lawyers and things, you pay a fee, which is currently $250 per class, uh, and you get another 10 years. So Alrighty. you can spend three or 4000 today's dollars and have the trademark for 20 years, which, of course, by that time, it could be of very substantial value, depending on your business. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people don't go to the point of having trademarks. Yeah. Um, and as small business people, probably sole traders, um, that may be fine. Mm. But once you go into the marketplace and you're exposing your product and creating you know, the value in your intellectual property and so forth, it becomes quite a different issue, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Actually, people get a bit carried, unfortunately, with the system in Australia because of the states. But if you remember this, the trademark is number one, um, the a company name uh, is number two, and the business name is number three. So people register a business name and think that's protective. Obviously, as I just said, that's at the bottom of the ladder. So trademarks give you not only the right to build on that brand or identity, but also give you the right to say to someone, you are passing off, which is the legal terminology, you're passing yourself off as me. So if you have a trademark and I think, well, Brian's got a trademark called Franchise Now, it's the time or something, and you register that and I rush around using that, you can say to me, stop and be sisters, as it were, or, or I'm going to sue you. And if you're successful, and most times you would be, you can also get all the profits that I've made from, from using your trademark. So trademarks have immense power and people, obviously, as I said, particularly in the last decade or so, have realised that trademarking is very, very important and franchisors, and we can do that for people, of course, but franchisors should have a trademark even if it's in the process of being applied for when they go to the market as a franchisor. Right, I understand. Okay, all right, thank you for that. It, it is a broad area and certainly one that's worth um, getting clarified um, yes. um, with, with an expert. Okay, um, moving down, um, there's a lots, of, lots of small issues which get addressed and which often vary descriptions of the business and so on from from company to company, but there are some issues that pop up which I think warrant a little bit more discussion. Now, one of those is the territory. Yeah. Um, there's a vast range of opinions about territories and a vast range of methods of calculating territories mm. and also a lot of potential dispute. Um, they can cause a lot of, a lot of dissatisfaction amongst franchisees um, because of the management of the, 
of the operation of the territories where people perhaps tend to sometimes work outside their territory to the cost of someone else. So the definition of the territory is quite critical, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, ideally, I was with a franchise uh, or yesterday in Brisbane, a potential new franchisor, um, and uh, they actually have a consultant who's been helping them with them for some time, who's sort of an accountant as well as a bit of a franchise knowledge with some franchise knowledge. He's sort of a dead against territories. Um, but as far as defining them, I always think that a, a map is the best because mm. um, postcodes can change. People say postcodes, but really a map is something you can look at and say, well, I've got the edge of this road, or in fact it's usually defined as the middle of the road, the middle of the street, the middle of the lane, or whatever. Um, and so I can say this is mine rather than saying where does this postcard code end because postcards aren't, particularly if you take them out of yellow pages or something, they're very vague. Um, and it's no use saying the suburb of this or the township of this because, again, people don't know where that boundary ends. So maps are the best. The question then arises out of that, which, again, we could talk about for hours, with differing views as to whether it's exclusive, semi-exclusive, you can operate outside your territory till there's a franchise in it, all sorts of things. Um, and I think that that depends on the type of franchise. Some franchisors that we have run a call centre uh, and it's automatically rooted round, as it were, it goes to there, and if you're not available, it goes to the next one, and it goes on a module, and if they've got 50 franchisees, they keep on rotating, uh, and they don't have a territory. Mortgage Choice, for example, have an area, say, the Gold Coast, where we're situated, um, and they have, in their franchise agreements at the moment, I think until January 2015, uh, they will only have nine franchisees in this area, so again, there might have been one or two when they started here six or eight years ago, and they're gradually filling it up. So there are all sorts of there are all sorts of options, and as I have said to you, and you know as well as uh, me, because we've been in the industry about the same time, um, I say to people about the practical things that we're talking about at the moment, the the uh, negotiable things, if you like, particularly at franchise all level. Um, the rule is there's no rules. It's what works for your industry. It's what's going to work for the franchisee. It's what's going to work to get this business up and out on the road, and to be able to basically sell it and place it with people. Exactly, and you made a good comment there. I mean, there are no rules, mm. um, which is precisely why you need to be very careful in in developing the system for a particular franchise, in order that um, that uh, you you can lay down the pathway. I suppose you've got the uh, uh, you've got the definition of what you can and can't do, mm. because otherwise there are very broad interpretations. And territory is one where um, it's often Often in the past, seen people make the mistake of granting very generous territories, particularly when the, in the early days, uh, perhaps negotiating to get a franchisee on board. Yeah. And, and one thing the franchisee asks for is for maybe an extended territory or, or something yeah. of that nature. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to cost the franchisee or anything at that point in time, but it's a decision as the business grows which can put them under a fair bit of uh, pressure and certainly lo lost potential income, isn't it? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I have a case where I've probably the best franchisor I ever had, which were warm franchisors. If there's any listening, there's going to be franchisors or are, <laughs> where this chap started and nine years later went from nothing to 40 million he sold his business for about five years ago to a public company. But he actually sold his first franchise on the Sunshine Coast and had no idea um, from operating the business on the Gold Coast in a very small premises and doing very well. And so he gave the whole Sunshine Coast. Now, that area was, within six years, divided into four different areas, so it just kept on being subdivided by the franchisee that actually had it. The good point there is the franchisor worked as this franchisor was a very, very good, 
worker, if you like, or, or had the ability to work very well with his franchisees. And so they worked together to actually cut it up and market it. So the franchisor got an extra one number on his franchise or e-list and also a transfer fee and the franchise he I think by the time the second one had been sold already had his initial fee back mm. um, and in fact he paid 75 and when he was bought out one territory he was paid over 300,000 so um, to go public so the the areas can be they can be subdivided but you're 100% right you need to um, the best practice is to really work out what is your market got, got to be or what is a franchisee's got market got to be to have that income then possibly I know it's a bit pie in the sky but most people know we acted for the largest um, dog washing in the first in Australia for about 14 years till they sold for some millions a couple of years ago and they used to start at 40,000 houses by the time they'd gone about three years they worked out that 15,000 houses was enough to give whatever however many dogs it was and then mm. the, wash 5% or 3% of that and you've got more than enough to do in a 50-hour <laughs> week. So it is a bit of trial and error, but um, if the franchisor knows his or her or its industry, they're usually capable of sitting down and working out fairly accurately what will constitute where the market is and what will constitute that market sufficient to earn a franchisee, you know, a reasonable plus living. Yes, um, th there are instances where, um, not unlike happened on the Sunshine Coast, there where someone has a territory and um, there may be some provisions put in the agreement that it can be subdivided, yes. um, particularly if it's a fixed um, position like a retail outlet, yes. um, where it may be it's in a small town or a suburb mm. or a shopping centre, and then um, the business is busy or may not be that busy and the franchisor makes an approach for um, that territory to be subdivided, um, that can lead to a few, a few difficult negotiations, can't it? Well, it can, but um, I've got one at the moment with a coffee shop where the franchise or E's been a bit difficult and we're acting for the franchise E. Um, but, um, and, and the franchisor's not helping at all to try and find a new shop um, that's oh. not quite the same position but uh, you do have people like price attack for example who are very very hard franchisors not to be repeated but we're continually in battle with them acting for a number of franchisees around the country and they have a they have an attitude that we'll put your shop here as a franchisee and we'll open one right next door if we want to and that's enough to put most people off but mm. um, and it's not that price attacks are necessarily that good again not to be quoted but um, uh, so that's a very hard thing, but most franchisors, uh, I liken um, the, my, I'm not talking to franchisors, we basically have a franchisor practice here, but um, when I'm talking to them about sort of getting started, I say, look, you've got to have, you've got two hands, you've got to have a knife in one hand, and you have that in the franchisee's stomach, and you have the other hand round patting his back and making him feel warm. <laughs> because you've got to be firm, you've got to have a firm document, you've got to have firm control, you've got to be prepared to breach people and so on and so on, but you've also got to know when to say, look, that was well done, or this is great, or you've done well here, or let's expand this, or let's talk about cutting your territory down because it's too big, etc., etc., rather than putting their heads in the sand. So you can certainly, and the agreements that we have, and I think in common with most, do certainly allow the franchisee with the franchisor's um, permission to uh, cut their area off. And occasionally in the early stages, Brian, as you would know as well, it, it's a bit like uh, some spots on your body that don't all join necessarily and so sometimes you'll find a franchisor if he's got a circle or an area or whatever there might be some dead ground in the middle and someone else might have some dead ground and so they can 
they might have been working that territory under some arrangement, but then the franchisee decides, well, I could use a little bit of this dead territory and some of yours, Brian, and some of yours, Ivan's, and create a whole new territory so the franchisor will you know, work with them to fulfil the area up, as it were. Mm, yeah, yeah. Actually, what I like uh, um, about the time I spend speaking with you, uh, Ivan, is that you've got a lot of experience with a wide range of franchisors, so you've seen a lot of the uh, the issues that pop up, because I think um, it's um, it's not necessarily difficult to acquire a franchise agreement or to get some suggestions, but it's important that the people you speak to in all aspects of franchising, particularly the legal area, mm. are conscious of the likelihood in the event that you do get disputes and, and things coming off the rails, which yeah. can happen for all, all manner of reasons, as, 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 as indeed with all endeavours in life. Yeah. Well, I think, Brian, looking, I've known you for a while, two decades, so uh, our approach and my approach and the people in this office that I look after um, are very much as being a commercial, because one thing you don't want, and it happens occasionally in the sort of conveyancing type field or whatever, is you have a lawyer who says, oh, well, this is wrong or that is wrong or we won't bend here or we won't do that. You've got to be flexible and most importantly, the big word is you've got to be commercial. You've got to try and use every effort uh, to get the commercial deal that your client brings to you um, past the line because we're French as all solicitors. We're here to make our clients wealthy, not to, as other criminal people might be, to keep them out of jail or whatever. We're, we're here to make them wealthy and that's we haven't done the job properly if we're continually um, saying, well, this deal didn't go through because we were slow getting it off the line or whatever. And that does happen. I've seen, mm. I've heard people say it takes, you know, two to three weeks to get documents out of my lawyer or, or the other way, the franchisee. I've had people five weeks, you know, sitting on a, 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 a solicitor's desk while he, uh, being a family lawyer, was off doing something else and the franchisor eventually had to pull the franchise. He said, I just can't wait any longer. Mm. So you need to be dealing with people who, active. who are commercial mm. and also... Um, as you said, get on with the job. Um, uh, now, the, the next the next item that I've uh, I've hi highlighted here is that of the term of the franchise. In other words, the period that it extends for. Yeah. And I, I often use the analogy of a lease, which people are more commonly used to, in as much as um, it's a bit like a franchise agreement than some of the other aspects. It's totally open. The, the terms are really up to you. It comes back to what are commercially practical, and from the point of view of the life of the franchise, what's likely to be um, worthwhile. But there are a lot of considerations, aren't there? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Certainly in something that has plant and equipment, for example, or, or say a coffee shop, for example, or retail, and we act for a couple of restaurant chains similarly, five years is about the life, really, of the plant and the equipment, and the, and the place needs a, a do-up or even possibly a colour scheme change or whatever at that time. Um, there's nothing again, the no rules principle. Um, the person I mentioned that actually sold for 40 million um, public to a public company and they unwound the franchise, uh, uh, but he actually had five terms of five years each, ten years each. And, when wow. his, and, I, and I said to him, I said, bloody hell, you know, I won't be around in 50 years' time, Bill, and nor will you because he's sort of my age. Uh, and he didn't even get past nine years. But normally it's something like five years with three or four rights of five. And why five years is quite good is that um, it allows a number of things. One is uh, the franchisor to introduce the then current franchise agreement because franchise agreements do evolve just like anything else. There's different ways of doing things. There's different methods of, you know, probably 10 or 15 years ago, I don't really remember a transfer fee or possibly even not a renewal fee. Now they're very much the order of the day. So the franchisor gets those fees when the time arises. Uh, so if you have a if you have too long a, a term, 
excuse me, say 10 years, it could be that you're miss, missing out as a franchisor on some of the fees. Um, sometimes there's not a, 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 a formula for increasing, say, the service fee or sometimes known as the royalty. Again, you could have that fixed for five years if it's not tied to an income or whatever. So five years is a fairly good time. Um, and then two or three rights of renewal because it doesn't cost the franchisor any more to say, I'll give you those rights of renewal, but the warmth and, and um, stability it gives a franchisee um, is great because a franchisee might think, well, it's going to take me six months for a year to sort of learn where the pedals are and, um, and to, to actually you know, make, some, make some profit and get going and then, hell, I've only got four years left or look at it and say, I want to sell at some time, um, whereas if there's three or four rights of renewal, and the franchisee exercises those very often. Franchise businesses will turn over every two or three or four years, just sort of on average, I suppose, um, depending on the industry. So five years plus three or four rights of five is, is pretty typical. Yeah, no, there's some interesting aspects one needs to take into account there. I mean, um, we look at long term, you know, we talk about three, four, five terms of five years, um, but there has been a history with some groups where they wanted to buy back the franchises and, and become a corporate entity again. The famous case I remember was some years back now with Pizza Hut when they decorporate, well they corporatized and defranchised, but uh, um, and the, there's been other fairly high profile instances as well. So one needs to be really sure about your long term goals I suppose. If you do have ambitions of making it into a, a corporate company down the track. Yes, I suppose. I mean, not too many franchisors do that, mm. um, yeah, although you're quite right. That was a, a multinational buying up, you know, the Australian side of things. Um, and now, of course, they're back out franchising again. But mm. um, uh, it doesn't very often happen. Franchisors don't usually buy back businesses, uh, even just one, for example, unless there's a ready market for it or it's very reasonable or there are other circumstances that suit them to buy it. And that's another different... That's another mindset that the franchisor has to change from working in the business to working on the business, standing away from it and assisting the franchisees and managing the franchisees to run a business which was formerly their business sort of thing. So um, again, most franchisors that try and fiddle in the two don't make a very good job of, of being a franchisor. Uh, now another point which um, again comes up frequently in, in the leasehold area um, and which applies perhaps even more so in franchising is when it comes to a right of renewal, the terms and conditions because this is sometimes seen as an opportunity, often mistakenly by a franchisor, if he's not totally satisfied with the performance of that franchisee, um, it's, it can be an opportunity to, um, to, to uh, possibly avoid renewal or to, to um, apply a, a termination um, what's your view on that? Well, um, I, look, I say that to franchisors, I'm talking to them all day, every day, that um, not to the same comment, but something along the lines of it's a pretty brave franchisor, and I'm talking to franchisees as well, that would terminate you in a circumstance where you can't be terminated. Um, most franchise agreements, again, say that the auto, that you have to give notice, the usual types of things. There is actually an amendment to the, to the code last year in July which makes... Um, not granting the franchise the renewal um, even more, more difficult. But in most instances, the franchisor wants the franchisee to stay on. Mm. If they don't want to, then they can follow, if there's grounds, of course, the usual procedure of breaching them. And then, because most, most franchise agreements say at the renewal time at, and the time of giving the notice, which is usually something like a minimum of three months earlier, that the franchisee must not be in breach of the agreement. Yes. And this is the case with this coffee one I was talking about before. 
28th of August is three months before a new one, and our clients are currently in breach because they're miles behind in money. So the franchisor is not really getting too excited about trying to find new premises when, excuse me, unless our clients can find some fairly substantial money or reach another agreement with the franchisor, they're going to be in breach, can't reach their can't exercise their right and will lose a very valuable you know, franchise business which has been turning over more than a million a year, about 1.4, in a shopping centre just south of Brisbane. So um, there's a lot at stake, but uh, some franchisors do say can't wait for them to, um, to come up to renewal because they're not going to renew, but as I said, a lot of that's just set in the heat of the moment. Uh, what we put in our agreements, again, is fairly typical, or it should be, sort of a good faith uh, clause saying that the franchisor at the time of renewal will have the right to, to increase fees, etc., 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 to the then current level by using the then current agreement, which I said before, but will not uh, change the territory. So you can't take that as an opportunity to say, well, I'm going to renew, but I'm going to take half your territory and sell it on to someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, because there's actually a lot invested in this, because uh, the goodwill of the franchise uh, is often related value-wise by an accountant, um, as far as how long they've got left in the term of their agreement. Yeah. And so there's a lot to be, a lot can hinge on it, can't it? Yeah, it is, you're quite right, yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, now, um, being conscious when you're setting those terms and the number of them, is that uh, what's the anticipation at the end of the term? Because uh, it's a question that prospective franchisees ask probably one of the most common questions is what happens at the end of the franchise? Um, and that's something where there's been, it's, it's been referred to a number of times in these different inquiries um, and more recently in Western Australia where there was a bit of pressure as to uh, what rights the franchisee has that have disappeared short term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, well the short answer is, and blunt as it seems, um, the, the franchisee on the 31st of May might have a franchise, but if it expires at midnight that night on the 1st of June, he has no business, so therefore no goodwill. Mm. Um, it's as simple as that. He doesn't have a right anymore to use the, um, you know, the, the leaven, herbs and spices, as I call it, the intellectual property confidential information, all the things that, that he did have access to before, the supply chain and those sorts of things. So depending on whether he, he or she or they own the business in the sense of premises or lease them or whatever it's, it happens to be, uh, but you know, it's as blunt as that, so yep. um, there's, no real, there's no real simple answer to that. Um, obviously, with restraint provisions and bits and pieces, that has some regard, but as I said before, once the franchise agreement expires, if it's not renewed or it just simply has gone through all its renewals and the franchisor doesn't want to start up again, um, then the franchisee doesn't have any right to continue operating that particular business. Right. Now, um, the next one is, is, is plant equipment, and we look sometimes at authorised equipment and so forth, where particularly where you may be referring to a specialist um, business of some kind, where particular um, tools or equipment, it may be software or hardware, it may be vehicles or, um, or machinery are required to operate the business. And this is an opportunity to, uh, to actually schedule those. But into what sort of detail do you suggest people go when they come down to, you know, do they include the pencils and the eraser in the drawer and the post-it notes? Or? Um, no, not really. I mean, look, the simple way we divide it up is authorised equipment dash franchises or supplied uh, and that means from an authorised supplier, so the franchisor might supply, uh, who knows, whatever the equipment happens to be. Um, then franchisee supplied as a separate division under the same sort of heading. 
and that might be that might then say you know office requisites being ABC and D and so on. But um, as I tell people, you shouldn't get too caught up in the chocolate biscuit clause. You know, it's not going to say what sort of biscuits or what what uh, type of paper they have in their printer and their copier and so on. But the authorised equipment is really to say that they must have a um, let's say a computer, for example, of a certain specification, whatever. Or it might be that they've got to have a particular type of machine, or, or and authorised equipment is usually quite important. Um, we act for an outfit called the Leather and Vinyl Doctor across Australia, um, and they have um, very about a page and a half of tight, well, two two columns sort of things of authorised equipment and authorised goods because their colours and things are very very important, their pigments and so on and so on, and all of their tools and some of them are sort of so-called secret tools, but. So they're in a separate section, but authorised equipment and authorised plant and authorised goods and all those sort of things are very important to have um, fairly well detailed. So again, the franchisor can say, well, look, Ivan, pull you're our franchisee here and you're using some equipment which is not authorised. We're going to breach you. Yes, this brings into, um, um, we'll, um, we'll cover a couple more topics before we wrap up. Yeah, um, sure. was, um, you mentioned their authorised goods. Now, um, this is an area very often where um, it, it does, certainly in the past, has led to, to, to many disputes where there may be a particular product which may or may not be, it may be produced by the franchise or it may be acquired from a third party, mm. but one where they've negotiated contracts and so forth. And uh, it, this goes extends to as far as, McDonald's with their hamburgers, um, yeah. for example, you know, um, there are partnerships in the in the farms that grow the cattle, etc., etc. But also, a lot of franchise groups will maybe have a particular product. It may be a cleaning product or a range of products, that sort of thing. Um, and the point of contention sometimes is, well, look, I'm paying X, Y, Z. I might be paying five dollars a bottle for this. I can go and buy some from from Aldi for uh, or the wholesalers for four dollars fifty. Why shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, what, what are the, um, uh, the the sort of issues surrounding those types of uh, questions? Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, you're quite right. That is, um, it, this is complicated and yet simple. Um, the trademarks, sorry, the Trade Practices Act 1995, which is now, I don't know why the hell they changed the name, it doesn't change anything else. The Competition and Consumer Act, I think it is, from the 1st of January, um, basically con uh, contains in two or three provisions, uh, 45 and 47, I think 81 of the three that you can't have what you've quite correctly said uh, is called third-line forcing or a monopoly arrangement. So um, third-line forcing is where you say to me as a franchisee, you must buy your products from XYZ, and, it, and XYZ may be in whole or in part or not at all um, owned or influenced by you. And a tight arrangement simply say where you say you must buy it from me. Um, we put in our, there are two ways of getting around it uh, legitimately and legally. One is, and very seldom happens, you can actually, and we do this about once every year for a franchise or that listens to us, um, you can actually go to the um, trade, uh, sorry, the ACCC and seek an exemption. So we have one, for example, um, for a very large pill-making company or pill-importing company, uh, probably the largest producer of, um, uh, sorry to give you all these these, these examples, but they're just easy to explain. Mm, mm, they're very helpful. Um, which is the largest possibly producer of uh, weight loss products in Australia. They didn't want to go franchising, but they have all the other aspects. And so what they actually do, we got an exemption for them um, so that they don't have to be a franchise and they can, in fact, have third-line forcing because they produce, say, let's say 10 million pills they have coming in in a container. I'm being ridiculous now. But by the time, and they're a dollar a 
or whatever they are, and by the time they get into the bottle, they might be five dollars each. Um, and that, and everything else, they uh, avoid a section in the in the code by not actually charging any more than the wholesale price of goods and the wholesale price of services. So their trainer comes in, and if that trainer is paid twenty-five dollars uh, and plus you know expenses an hour, that's exactly what the pharmacy pays to have that person in there training their staff. And the same with the pills, they say we're not making a profit on it, and the ACCC accepted that. Um, so there's one, that's the one way, but the, the way that 90, 95% probably of people understand is uh, we put a clause in to say that um, it's imperative, and that's the wrong word, but the franchisor requires that the franchisees each um, get the, obtain the authorised goods and authorised products, etc., from authorised suppliers, etc., 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 uh, but if the franchisee can find that product um, elsewhere, it has to have the franchisor's consent, which cannot be unreasonably withheld, etc. So what happens in the real world is I find a product which is the same delivery. It's not all about price. It might be delivery. It might be particularly food is very good to deal with because you can put a, you know, a, a burger or something under a, under a microscope and see it's got a lot of different fat and bits and pieces in it, whereas the other one might look the same, but it might not be to your specifications. But... Um, so you either, the franchisor then finds a new supplier who the, who the franchisee has, um, uh, has found for them, or they, um, or they in fact uh, get the existing supplier to you know, sharpen their pencil or make a better product or deliver it quicker or whatever it might be. In the real world, I know I've taken a while to explain it, but in the real world it doesn't cause a problem. Um, the classic case uh, in Queensland is where... Um, there's a place that used to be called Wimps uh, at um, opposite Kmart at, on the way to Brisbane. I've forgotten Annadale, I think it is, just north of Logan. Um, and he used to hop across to Kmart and get his tyres. And they took him to court and um, they had said no, he was free to buy his tyres wherever they were because they were of the same specifications, and size, etc., etc., and he could buy them cheaper. So it doesn't very often occur. Um, we've actually got one against one of the larger tyre franchisors on the other side acting for a we were acting for a franchisee who were trying, acting as a group of franchisees because they import their own tyres and we're trying to um, uh, reach an agreement whereby our people can rush off and buy the same tyres uh, which they can buy in Sydney imported um, cheaper and we're trying to sort of negotiate a settlement rather than you know, mm. the ACCC. Mm. Mm. And that's certainly a place you don't want to be because as a franchisor it may be well be that the margin you have on those tyres is a contingent part, an essential part of your, your cash flow and your profitability of your business. So yes. it is something to be conscious of that uh, yes. you need to be aware of. And I, my feeling there is that um, it, it's always better to disclose any margins or rebates. Well, you have uh, to now, yes. In the disclosure document, particularly since the 1st of July last year, which was the last amendment of the Franchising Code, you have to, in Section 9.1, um, I think it's I and J now, moves it down a couple, you have to actually say, it says, uh, is the fran does the franchisor or an associate, which means any company defined as any company which uh, has a 15% or more common holding with the franchisor or any of its shareholders, does the franchisor or an associate receive any rebate or financial benefit from the supply of goods or services to a franchisee? And you've got to put there yes or no, that's quite simple. The next one used to say, did you, are you going to share it? It still says that, but the one before has now been broadened to say, and if so, who's it from? So you have to list out who they come from, but you don't actually have to list out what it is in amount, and you just have to say whether it's going to be shared, and if so, in part or in whole or whatever. 
and most franchisors um, say something like, yes, we will you know, put some of it in the marketing fee and some of it will pocket or whatever. You've got to be careful of these answers, but really it's not a trap if you fully disclose mm. Um, mm. who they're coming from. That's the main thing because, yep. um, you know, I didn't know of someone running around in a new BMW on the Gold Coast who is the franchisees pay for it because his paper supplier for the national franchise gives him a new BMW on lease every year. So <laughs> he's now got to disclose that. Mm. Uh, whereas 15 years or 10 years ago, he didn't have to. No, it can always create suspicion, and that's the beginning sometimes of a spoiling a really good relationship. Yes. Um, all right, look, we've taken up a lot of your time, no, but right. I really appreciate that, and it's, it's obvious there's a lot more there that's of interest. So if we can prevail upon you at some later date, yes, um, yes. there are a lot of other items, and yes. this is to me is the real meat and potatoes about it all. Yeah, that's um, just being at the, at the front and, and mm, the battle. Yeah. It is, um, because these are the issues which um, you really need to be sure you address so that in the future, when that franchise agreement is put away in the filing cabinet, if ever there's any need to recourse to it because there are any questions raised, you've got it there and you feel comfortable and you sleep well at night knowing that you've got the issue covered and you're not likely to be vulnerable. Um, what I'd like to do now, Ivan, if you've got a couple of minutes, yes, is sir. just to uh, see if anyone has any questions. Yes, if anyone right. would no, like no. to ask any questions, it's an open gambit. Um, just um, all you need to do is just hit star six. Uh, that will unmute your line, and you can ask any questions of, uh, of Ivan or myself. Just give people a moment or two if they've uh, got anything there written down or whatever. Otherwise, you're very welcome to drop an email through. Um, uh, Arden and I spend some time talking uh, in the course of business, so um, you're welcome to send an email through to me, and um, if appropriate, I'll forward it through to Ivan, yeah. or we give you a response, whatever is needed. But uh, um, in proceeding through with your uh, preparation of your system, no doubt at some stage um, you'll be in touch with Ivan at any event. Um, he is our preferred and recommended supplier from the point of view of franchise agreements, and um, um, I think you'll find you'll you'll you'll, uh, you'll be able to take the benefit of uh, a lot of lot of advice and a lot of knowledge. All right, we don't have any further mess, um, questions there at this point in time. So what I'd like to do is to wrap up um, the teleconference today. Thank Ivan very much for coming along. Well, thank you and for the opportunity, Brian, and all listeners. Yes. Um, and thank you everyone for joining in. We'll uh, we'll catch again um, yep. at our next teleconference. To our members who are online, and Ivan will speak again sometime. Sometime down the track. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you very much, Brian. Thank you. Okay. Really appreciate it. Bye. Bye.